You can open your Bibles to the very end of John's Gospel. We're looking at those last two verses that I just read. The last two verses, the final two verses of the final Gospel, the fourth Gospel. Now, many scholars, even some evangelical scholars, believe that the last two verses in John come from a different source than the rest of the book. To them, verses 24 and 25 seem disconnected to the rest of chapter 21. But verse 24, as I think you'll see as we go through this sermon, is better seen as part of the answer to Peter's question, you remember from last week, back in verse 21. In verse 21, Peter saw John... So apparently, you know, Jesus and Peter had gotten up from the, fi- from the charcoal fire and, and were walking and talking. And John followed them. And he was not far behind. And so Peter sees John and he turns to Jesus and asks, but Lord, what about this man? And that's the question we explored last week. Lord, what about him? Will he have to bear the same cross that you are giving to me? Every follower of Jesus, every disciple in this sanctuary, lives under the same commission that Jesus gave back in chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, I send you. This sending applies to every single follower of Christ. And this sending, by the way, includes a cross, a unique cross. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending you. That's, that's the generic But after that, there are distinctions. Peter served by shepherding the flock and by glorifying God in his death on a cross. John served Jesus. He followed Jesus by by living a longer life and by being a trustworthy witness who wrote down the things that he saw in this book, for example, as well as in the epistles that he wrote. This means that verse 24 should be read really as part of verses 20 to 23. And verse 24 says this disciple, this, the disciple Jesus loved, who is John. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that this testimony is true. It's genuine. It can be trusted. You can bank on it. You can stake your life on it. Now, what's more difficult to figure out is this reference to we. Did you notice that? In that last clause, John writes, and we know that this testimony is true. Who's who's John talking about there? Now, one possible option is that the we refers to the church leader's closely linked to John, you know, in John's orbit. Maybe the, maybe the elders in his home church who decided to add, you know, after the gospel had been written, maybe even after John was dead, add a character reference for John at the end of his gospel. Now, the advantage to this view, of course, is that it gives full force to that plural we. The difficulty with this view, though, is that it's hard to imagine how or why this would happen? In what context would other church leaders think that it was necessary or even a good idea to provide a character reference uh, 
for an apostle, right? Uh, it's possible, but unlikely. A slightly better option is that John wrote his whole gospel with, with co-authors in a community. And this has some persuasive power because it allows John to be one of the authors, maybe the, the principal author, we could say, and, and yet in, in community with other authors. And to some extent, that, that was, that's true. He, he, he's not just relying on his own eyewitness, probably, uh, but talking to others, having conversations with others. But this view also runs into problems because in some places in John's writings, he uses this we, this first person plural, we, uh, really only to refer to, to an apostle. It has to refer to an apostle who has seen and heard and touched Jesus. We'll see that, we'll see that point in just a minute. Plus, in verse 25, the author refers to himself as I. So there appears to be, at the end of the day, a singular author. So the best option, the one that makes the most sense of all the data, is that the we simply refers to John. It's something of an editorial we. And this seems awkward to us, but in John's gospel, the plural pronoun we has already shown up a few times on the lips of various individual characters. For example, in John 3.2, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And a little later in that chapter, Jesus, in response to, to Nicodemus, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now that seems awkward to us. For, it, it, it's pretty clear that Jesus is just talking about himself. Uh, and it's, he's sort of replying to Nicodemus's we, and he's saying, you know, we uh, are testifying to this truth. But he's, he's referring to himself there. Again, awkward to us, but less awkward in, in that setting. Back in chapter 20, after Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, she ran to Peter and John and said to them in, in John 22, not... not I do not know where they have laid him, but they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. John also does this same sort of thing uh, frequently uh, in, his first, in, his, in his first and third epistle, actually, if you look through it. Let, let me just read the first few verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now the other elders in John's home church surely could not have said that. Only John could. Now, but perhaps the strongest evidence that the we at the end of John's gospel simply refers to John comes from the prologue. Of, of his gospel, the beginning. Remember what John says about himself in John 1, verse 14. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, the we, while there are other 
men and women to whom this applies, they'd seen and heard and, and touched and experienced Jesus in that way, when John is writing it, it, it only applies to him in this context. He's, he's referring to himself, even if he is a part of a larger group that it would have applied to in terms of those who had seen Jesus. They're not writing this book. In fact, John, John lived the longest and probably wrote this uh, after most, if not all, the people that, uh, that he knew who had seen Jesus were, were dead. So returning to, to John 21, there's no strong argument, at least we can say, there's no strong argument for seeing the we in verse 24 as referring to anyone other than John himself in terms of the authorship of this book, the apostle who had seen and heard and touched Jesus several decades earlier. Then verse 25 says, famously, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And in verse 24, Jesus identified himself, or John rather, identified himself as the beloved disciple. And now in verse 25, he makes an explicit self-reference where he says, I suppose, that's the first person singular that time. I suppose, John says. And, and, but, but John isn't content ending his book with the focus on him and his identity. He has revealed something to us here. That he's the beloved disciple. But his gospel is about Jesus. Verse 25 very overtly alludes to the end of chapter 20. That famous passage, really theme passage at the end of chapter 20. You remember it? Where John tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, they're not included in this book. But now, do you see what John does in verse 25? He, he expands the horizons. Not only did Jesus perform many other signs, not recorded in John, but he also did many other things, it says, not recorded in this fourth gospel. So many things, in fact, that if they were all recorded, if, if, if you'd write them down one by one with any kind of detail at all, John supposes that not even the cosmos itself could contain the books that could be, could be written. John, in verse 25, is once again alluding to the, to the prologue, to the introduction. So here in the epilogue, he's, he's alluding to the prologue. And we've seen some, um, some correspondence between the prologue and the epilogue in the, last, in the last few sermons. And he's doing it again. So as I mentioned earlier, John has already alluded... In verse 24, when he says that we know that his testimony is true, it, it kind of echoes, we beheld his glory. Okay? And now in verse 25, he's echoing the prologue again. John is bearing witness to Jesus, the incarnate word, the God-man, through whom the entire cosmos, the whole world, same word there, the whole cosmos was created. Everything that was created was created through 
the Word, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And that cosmos that he created wouldn't even be able to contain the deeds of the one who created it. It's too small. It's too inadequate a library for all the books. As one commentator wrote, John identified himself in verse 24. But he is not content to focus on himself, not even on his veracity, not even on the, on the truthfulness of his gospel. He must close by saying his own work is only a minute part of all the honors due to the Son. So really, he's, he's putting himself in his place, saying much more could be written. We could almost interpret that last verse in John as suggesting that the activity of Christ is over. If we're not careful, we might tend to think, oh, it's, it's all in the past. It's, it's, what's happened has happened, and some of it's been recorded. But that's not at all what John is saying. In fact, all of John 21, the, the whole epilogue, uh, which, by the way, doesn't even have an account of the ascension. All of John 21 is designed to communicate that the risen and reigning Lord is in fellowship with His people. His work continues. He will continue to be with us and work in us and through us until the end of the age. It's true that John's gospel ends with a reference to the things that Jesus did in the past. That's a, a past tense reference there, verb. But if, if you flip one page over, or if you have a Bible that has introductions to the books, maybe a few pages over, to the first verse in Acts, the very first verse refers to Christ's earthly activities, so, so his earthly ministry, as all that Jesus began to do. And teach. Okay, so, so Luke, the author of Acts, is, is setting, setting us up here to see the works of Jesus as only just beginning. And this is after his ascension back into heaven. After he had given, uh, well, no, he, he wrote it after he'd given the Spirit, but he, he was about to give the Spirit in the book of Acts. But everything up to giving of the Spirit was just the beginning, Luke says. Just the beginning of his ministry. So from his baptism to his ascension, baptism, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all of that constitutes the beginning of his important acts. Jesus' life was uniquely important. So we, we, we it, it was uniquely important what Jesus did from his baptism and his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension. But it was only the beginning of the story of Christianity. His life lives on in the words, deeds, teachings, in the life of his church, his body here on earth, his redeemed community, those that he has saved by his blood. His work, his life continues. So you're a member of that community. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a member of that redeemed community. If you're trusting in Jesus as your Redeemer, as, as the Savior of your sins, from your sins, 
you're a member of His church if you have been born again, if you are looking to Christ for your salvation, if you have been born of water and the Spirit from above, then you are a vessel through which, an instrument through which Christ continues to live and work on earth. So are you making a conscious choice to continue the activity of Christ while He is in heaven and you're on earth? Is, is, is His life being lived in and through you? We need to ask this question as a church body, as a congregation, as well as, as individual Christians. Does the life of Christ continue on earth in you? If so, how so? What are some tangible ways that the life of Christ is showing up in your life? Paul says that for him to live is Christ. And that he's been crucified and that his life is really Christ's life in him. Galatians 2. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And, and Paul really believed that to live in union with Christ means for him, for, for Jesus, to live through Paul. Is Jesus living through you? Lord willing, in the coming days, weeks, each of you individually and all of us as a church body will have an opportunity to show the love of Christ to an Afghan refugee family. How will we respond? How will we respond to that opportunity? This week, God will give you, each of you, an opportunity for you to show the love of Christ. Christ's spirit will drive you out into the world and give you opportunities, just as he drove Jesus into the, to the desert. He'll drive you into places where you will have an opportunity to let Christ live through you, where you can show other church members, unbelievers, people at work, people in your home, your neighbors, the love of Christ. How will you respond? Will the life of Christ be manifested in you this week? Will it show itself in your life? Will it show itself in our body life in the days, weeks, months, and years to come? Christ is no longer bodily on earth. His body, he's in heaven. But his work goes on. And it's, it's your duty as well as your privilege, our privilege and our duty, to be a channel, a conduit for the continued activity of Christ on earth. That's our mission. That's what God has commissioned us to do. That's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. Jesus said in John 14, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Jesus begins that saying by saying, Most assuredly in the New King James, as I just read it, which is really two 
two Greek words, you know, back to back. It's the Greek word is amen. Amen, amen. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The word amen or amen, whichever you prefer, it, it means truly. It indicates that something is notably true. Really true. You can't really have something that's um, true and then really true. It's either true or not, but it's notably true. It's importantly true. Jesus begins a lot of his important sayings with amen, amen. And when we, when we say amen at the end, you know, we, we usually do it at the end of a prayer, uh, at the end of something. Uh, if some, maybe if someone says something that we particularly agree with, that we think is important and true, we'll, we'll, we'll say amen at the end of it. Uh, the entire Bible ends fittingly with an amen. Bobby read from Jude, that book ends with amen. Some books end with amen, including John's gospel. He ends it with, so be it. This is notably true. This is not just true, but important. It means this is true and you can stake your life on it. John believed every word in his gospel. That's not hard to believe. But he also staked his life on it. Have you staked your life on the truths in this gospel? Are you all in? Do you believe John's testimony is true? Well, there's a way to test whether we believe John's testimony is true. Saving faith, true faith, always manifests itself in action, in activity, in fruit, in works. When a person believes in Christ, the life of Christ will be on display, not perfectly, but it will be on display in that person. There will be growth in grace and godliness. So here's the test. If you believe that all the things in John's gospel are true, all the words, all the deeds, you will obey the two final words of Christ in this gospel. Do you know what they are? Remember what they were? The two final words of Jesus. If you've got your Bible open, you can look back a couple verses and see. In verse 23, they get quoted again later, but in verse 23 Follow me. After Peter asked Jesus about John's future, Jesus said to Peter, essentially, that's none of your business. If I want him to stay till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. These words, follow me, are the very last words in John's gospel. They're also some of the first words on the lips of Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus says, John says that Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. So there's some of the first words in the gospel and the very last words of Christ in John's gospel. And that, these are a reminder to us that the Christian faith 
is a person. The Christian faith is the person of Christ. Christianity is not just believing generically in, in some kind of abstract way. It's believing in Jesus. It's believing in a person. person of Jesus Christ. To the point of forsaking everything else to follow Him. These, these final words, final two words of Christ, they, they might be difficult to obey, but they're not difficult to understand, to interpret. Jesus himself provides the interpretation for us, particularly in the other Gospels. For example, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9, verses 23 to 25. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Following Jesus means denying yourself and taking up your cross. That's, the res- that's, that's our response to the good news. If you believe the gospel, if you've received Jesus, if you believe that John's testimony is true about the crucified and risen Messiah, the Son of God. It'll be evident in a life of following Jesus, which means denying yourself and taking up your cross every day. What's it mean to deny yourself? Well, the first thing it means is to renounce your sin. You can't follow Christ without forsaking sin. Those two things always go together. Faith is always accompanied by repentance, a a, a turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus. Those, Those always go together. And repentance or renouncing sin is is not a a general or generic renunciation of sin. True renunciation of sin is as specific as specific sin. Which specific sins do you need to renounce? Is there an area in your life in which you are failing to tell yourself no? Do you murder people in your heart and with your tongue by hating them and slandering them, gossiping about them? Is your your lust getting the best of you more often than not? If you don't know how to say no ever to sin, then You shouldn't pretend to be living in the newness of Christ's resurrection life. Now, that saying no to sin is always going to be a struggle and it's never going to be a perfect renunciation in this life. But there will be a trajectory, as I like to say. There is a trajectory upward.
the first step in denying yourself is denying your specific sins that seek to rule over you. Doing real battle with them. That, that may be the, the way to think about it. Are you doing real battle? Are, are, you, are you waving the white flag? Or are you really, by God's grace, doing battle with the sins that seek to rule over you? Followers of Christ are on that upward trajectory of fighting the battle and learning how to be victorious, learning how to victoriously say no to renounce sin. God told Cain in Genesis 4, sin is it's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The Christian doesn't make peace with, with sin. The Christian kills sin. That's the, only, that's the only option that the Christian sees when it comes to sin. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin ended up killing Cain. Is it killing you? Denying yourself also involves renouncing everything that is not God's will for your life. So the first one is a little bit more straightforward and obvious. It, denying yourself means denying your sin, renouncing sin. That's obvious, right? Sin is bad. Sin, we identify sin, and there's only one thing you do with sin. You, you kill it. But what about those things that in themselves can be a good thing? Some of the things that you must renounce are not sins in themselves, which makes it all the more difficult for you to renounce them, Right? Now, I'm going to give two examples. first one may not hit home, but it, it, it'll help us get into this. So marriage is not a bad thing. In fact, marriage is a wonderful thing, a gift. But occasionally, God calls people to forsake marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Well, let me give an example that strikes closer to home. Possessions in themselves are not a bad thing. In fact, material wealth can be a gift from God. And yet Jesus specifically warns against a love of possessions. We're all relatively well off. So a love of possessions is a particular snare for most of us, right? Remember the rich young ruler who was given that command, follow me. But when he came to Jesus and asked what he should do to inherit eternal life, Jesus initially said, keep the law. And Jesus said this primarily to expose his need for God's grace, to expose that he wasn't actually keeping the law. The young man, of course, was self-satisfied and self-deceived because he imagined that he was keeping God's law. In fact, he'd been keeping it since he was a boy, he says. But the Lord Jesus put his finger on the thing that the rich young ruler was unwilling to renounce. His possessions. You still lack one thing, Jesus said. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. 
But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because, <clears throat> excuse me, because he was very rich. It turns out that this man never had really kept the law, which requires one to love God and to love his neighbor as himself. The man, this rich young ruler, he had a chance to, de to demonstrate his love for God. He had a chance to demonstrate that he was uh, a law keeper by following Jesus. And he had a chance to demonstrate his love for his neighbor by forsaking, giving away his possessions, by not being so tied to his material wealth. In the end, though, he was unwilling, unwilling to renounce his possessions and to follow Christ. Unwilling to deny himself in this way. What about you? Are you willing to renounce good things if they're not God's will for you, for your life? That's what following Jesus requires. So denying yourself is one side of the, of the following Jesus coin. The other side of that coin is, coin is taking up your cross, which Jesus says to do daily. Now, crucifixions don't happen in our culture. We, we've never seen one. Uh, so, so the image of, of someone taking up a cross is easily lost on us. We, we have to understand what this means through the lens of, of history. In Jesus' day, if you saw a man carrying a cross, you were looking at a man who was on his way to a place of execution. So when Jesus says to take up your cross daily, he means that you actively follow him into death, as it were. Denying yourself is, the, is we could say, the negative version, and taking up your cross is more the positive counterpart to self-denial. So self-denial is, is renouncing. Taking up your cross is embracing. And they're getting at similar things from different angles. Denying yourself means renouncing everything that is not God's will for you, starting with your sin. Taking up your cross means embracing everything that is God's will for you. And it means embracing God's will for you wholeheartedly and, here's the tough one, joyfully. Embracing God's will with a bad attitude, with resentment in your heart, will not do. God is calling you to actively and intentionally pick up that very difficult cross, your cross, your, your uniquely designed and given cross, and bear it for the joy set before you. And, and, and God has set joy before you. It lies ahead of those who take up their cross, just as it lay ahead for Jesus. Whether you can see it or not, there is a joy set before you that you can only get to through a cross. 
through bearing your cross that Jesus has given to you. In 1977, Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article titled Denial, Discipline, and Devotion. And I'm going to read a long quote. Just take over a minute from Elliot. Quote, I think there is a great deal of nonsense taught about this business of bearing our cross. For example, when people shrug their shoulders and say, well, I suppose... That's meant to be my cross. They suggest that the cross is some inevitable circumstance which cannot be avoided. But the cross can be avoided. So I think that what Jesus is getting at here is the voluntary positive acceptance of what he is asking of us. Whatever it may be. It is not servility. It's not a cop-out. It's not resignation or fatalism. It is a very positive, voluntary act of the will, a yes to God. In other words, we must say no to ourselves in order to say yes to God. This should be the dominant theme of our lives. Yes, Lord, what, you, what do you want me to do? There are all kinds of things we cannot avoid, difficulties, Blindness, a drunken husband, an intractable teenage child, a limitation of whatever sort. All of us have our particular set of limitations in which we are meant to glorify God. But we can go through life gritting our teeth, clenching our fists, and even saying yes to God in the sense of, well, if this is what you want, I'll take it, without ever once enjoy and voluntary obedience saying, yes, Lord, I delight to do this for you. So let us carry the cross every day. Not in the sense of something we hate, but in the sense of something which God is asking us to do and which we therefore determine to do joyfully. End quote. So bearing your cross resentfully is not an option. Jesus did not bear his cross resentfully. There was grief. Of course there was grief. But underlying that grief was a joy. He did it for the joy set before him. And to be able to take up your cross for the joy set before you, you must have faith in Christ. You have to have faith. The eyes of faith are the only eyes that can see that joy that lies ahead, that's on the other side of the suffering, the difficulties, the cross, whichever cross God has given you to bear. And so for the follower of Jesus, the disciple of Christ, denying yourself and taking up your cross must be a joyful act. It is a joyful act when done properly. Followers of Christ don't do it with bitterness. Following Christ means renouncing sin, renouncing everything that is not God's will for you, and joyfully embracing everything that is God's will for you, including your particular cross. Do you believe John's gospel?
Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you ready to take up your cross with a newfound joy? Rather than just gritting your teeth and bearing it, are you ready to do it, accept it for the joy set before you? I close this sermon and this sermon series with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Bishop Ryle ended his series on John with these words, which include a note of thanksgiving. Quote, And now, let us close the Gospel of John with mingled feelings of deep humility and deep thankfulness. We may well be humble when we think how ignorant we are and how little we comprehend of the treasures which this gospel contains. But we may well be thankful when we reflect how clear and plain is the instruction which it gives us about the way of salvation. The man who reads this gospel profitably is he who believes that Jesus is the Christ and believing has life in his name. Do we so believe? Let us never rest till we can give a satisfactory answer to that question. End quote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you decided to write this book for us, for our benefit, for our salvation. And we pray that what we have studied here would go deep into our souls, that it would be planted in our hearts, and that it would grow and bear much fruit in our lives. Help us to treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live out that gospel by denying ourselves and taking up our cross every day in obedience to Jesus, in imitation of Jesus. We confess that we depend on your spirit accomplishing this through us. We thank you for the promises that are sure, that are fixed, that are immovable, the promises that are in Jesus, the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. We give our amen to these truths, to this testimony of John, with gratitude in our hearts. And we pray this, we thank you for these promises, we ask for these blessings, in Jesus' name, amen.